On this Veterans Day, it's good to remember that some of the most treasured veterans aren't humans at all. They're dogs. Stay tuned and I'll tell you why. Bert Cohen here, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can I get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Every year on November 11th, our minds and hearts turn to veterans, both alive and dead, those who risk life and limb for a cause greater than themselves. Humans can do amazing things, fly planes, drive tanks, charge out of trenches, and strategize as to how to beat the enemy and stay alive and in one piece. But for century, we bipeds have not been doing combat alone. Before radio communications, pigeons were trained to send and receive vital messages, many of which were shot out of the skies. In the First World War, as in wars of the 19th century, horses carried troops into battle. And about 800,000 of the, these innocent but intelligent servants lost their lives in that truly horrible, insane war in which armistice finally arrived to exhausted troops of all belligerent sides on November 11th, 1918, at 11 a.m. Armistice Day, of course, eventually morphed into Veterans Day, and we remember and give thanks. And aside from carrier pigeons and horses, there are the dogs. Millions of Americans, including me, are truly dog lovers. We treasure them as unjudging buddies. And as we think of the human military veterans who put their lives on the line, it seems appropriate that we keep the incredible stories of heroic dogs in our hearts as well. What has been the role of military working dogs? Well, since World War I, tens of thousands of dogs have served in the United States Armed Forces alongside their handlers and canine units. Thousands of dogs have died in combat, saving the lives of our military troops. There are a great many war memorials across America, and as the first U.S. War Dogs Memorial was unveiled in 2006, more such monuments are popping up. Today we'll talk about the unique role of dogs in service to America's military and to learn what's being done to care for these heroes in their retirement. People are one thing. We assess and judge. We look out for ourselves. We're not innocent. Dogs, on the other hand, are pure innocence. Therefore, what happens to them deserves a special emotional support. They have no choice. We do. So as we celebrate Veterans Day 2021, today we consider dogs. Our first guest is Chris Willingham, a retired Master Sergeant who served 20 years in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1999 to 2019. A majority of his career was dedicated to the Military Working Dog Program. During his career, he served as military working dog handler, trainer, instructor, supervisor, and program manager. He deployed to the Middle East multiple times and was instrumental in developing or enhancing military working dog courses, policies, and orders due to his operational and training 
experience. And today, he is president of the U.S. War Dogs Association. Thanks so much for being with us today, Chris Willingham. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Chris has been active in community outreach to bring awareness to the service and sacrifice of our military working dogs and their handlers. He's provided numerous print, TV, and radio interviews about the military working dogs. He served as a keynote speaker for various events, both nationally and internationally. And Chris and his own military working dog, Luca, were featured in Maria Goodavage's New York Times bestselling book, Top Dog. Please tell us what you and Luca did that is described in that book. Yes, sir. So Luca was a, uh, she was a product of a new uh, canine program that was developed just for Iraq and Afghanistan. So it was the number one threat to coalition forces was uh, improvised explosive devices. And Luca was a well-trained explosive detection dog. Uh, She searched for, she did two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be her first handler. So I trained with her, uh, got her trained up. We were together for five years. And then uh, when my time came up at Camp Pendleton, uh, California, I had to pick the handler to replace me as their new handler. And I picked Juan Rodriguez, who was one of my Marines. We were in Afghanistan together in 2010, and just incredible Marine. And they paired up and... Uh, they deployed back to Afghanistan in 2011, uh, and Luca was injured on, on a patrol on March 23rd, 2012. Uh, one saved her life in that moment, and, and all told, she did three deployments and led about 400 patrols, and no one was in, injured when she was walking point, including her last. And, and then, uh, and I retired. I was able to adopt her thanks to the Robbie Law was established in 2000. So. I, I adopted her out and uh, kept her spoiled during her well-deserved retirement for the last six years of her life, and uh, she became a true ambassador to the military working dog program, just an incredibly special dog. Uh, all dogs are special, but I'm biased. What can I say? But that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like an amazing dog leading all those uh, uh, activities. It, it, this year, you assumed the role of president of the United States War Dog Association. I'm guessing no one listening is familiar with that organization. Plus, tell us, please, about the mission and its goals. Yes, sir. So the the, the U.S. War Dogs Association was established in 2000 by five Vietnam dog handlers. And those five guys met at a uh, canine reunion. So they didn't necessarily, they didn't work together. They actually represent three branches of service, but they had that common bond of, of being uh, dog handlers. And it started with the goal of uh, raising money for a monument uh, to represent all war dogs. And I can say this was in 2000, so pre-9-11. By the time they got the money raised uh, and dedicated the statue, it was uh, 2006. So I'll say 2000 happens, uh, 9-11 happens the next year. We start deploying uh, dogs again to Iraq and Afghanistan. They started supporting those dog teams uh, with care packages. And they realized they had something special there to kind of uh, support the current generation of dog handlers. And over the, since they dedicated that statue over the last 15 years, it really has developed into a a, a lifetime of practical support for military working dogs. So it's like if you're active duty, we send care packages and help get specialized equipment. If the dog gets ready, gets ready to retire, we have an awards, um, a military working dog service award we'll send to you. And when uh, the biggest part is in 
retirement, like I retire from the Marine Corps and I get you know, VA coverage to help me out with uh, medical sure. care. Well, our dogs don't get that. Huh. So we help cover that. So we actually, right now, we're supporting 1,100 retired military working dogs by paying their prescription medications every month. And the idea is that if you're taking care of that dog, you're taking care of that veteran because everyone who gets a chance to adopt their, their, their military working dog is going to do it. Like That dog is so special to you and they've been through so much with you. But it comes with a financial burden, and we're trying to alleviate that. Is uh, just to ensure you don't want every dog to have a happy, healthy life, and that, you know I don't want to put the handler in a bad spot uh, because they got to pay for some additional medical expenses. So we're we're covering that for them. Well, that sounds good. I know that uh, vet, you know, veterinarians can be expensive, but what are we going to do? We love our pets. So. How how is the United States War Dog Association funded? I don't suppose it's in. The defense budget. I mean, quite frankly, when I when I see on TV the the Wounded Warriors charity, it bugs me that they have to go begging. It should be, I think, in our military budget. So, how who who pays? How does uh, it get paid for? The retirement and medical needs covered. How are the how are you guys funded? That's a that's a great question. So yeah, we are a nonprofit. So we uh, we we it was basically through donations, through the love and support of people who. Donate from grassroots efforts of, uh, you know, $20 a month. They're going out. We go out to canine uh, events and set up booths and just talk about dogs uh-huh. and just collect donations all the way up to some of our mid-level. we got organizations that do fundraisers on our behalf uh, that have been huge supporters of us. Like I said, War Dogs has been established for 21 years, so we've, we've gained some, like, some really good grassroots uh, uh, support. And then we got um, – uh, right now, we have one uh, big sponsor is uh, Pet Supermarket, and they run a, a fundraiser for us. They've been with us for five years, and they help us out quite a bit. So that's that's the main. I mean, we lost our largest one. Uh, uh, we had another place that went, went out of business because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, they, they had they had 358 stores and had to close every one of them, and Ooh. that that took a toll on us. So we're you know always looking to for additional corporate sponsorship and, and, uh, but that's, there's no nuisance. It's, uh, that's what helps make the world go around for us. And being a nonprofit, we're just trying to meet a need to stop being met by the government. And, uh, and I would, you know, I mean, also the, I think the goal for every nonprofit is to be put out of business because, uh, the government's filling that need for them. Yeah, there's there's tremendous needs, and and they have to go begging for things like that, you know. But we we can't forget about the war dogs. It's it's for sure true. They they've been, uh, you know, amazing. And I and I read in doing a little bit of research here that the, what the Russians have done with their dogs is to put uh, bombs on them and and magnets, so they go under tanks and they blow up the tanks and die themselves. That's their style. That is not our style, for sure. We we don't Correct. do that kind of thing. And, and, you know, in the American Civil War, dogs looked for food and water for soldiers and helped locate wounded soldiers because they could smell them, quite frankly. My, my generation grew up with Rin Tin Tin, a German shepherd who was rescued from a World War I battlefield in Lorraine, France, by an American soldier who's the, the legend of the dog, Rin Tin Tin, rose through Hollywood movies. Just a total hero. And in 2012, Susan Orlean wrote a popular book about the dog, and his legend, which has been called a captivating exploration of our spiritual bond with animals. I enjoyed the book, all of it. Possibly the most famous war dog of that era is an American pit bull terrier who was the only dog to be given the rank of sergeant. 
Stubby was found as a stray on the Yale campus in 1917 during that First World War and smuggled to France during World War I by his adoptive owner, Corporal John Robert Conroy. You say the more institutional use of dogs really began with World War II. Can you give us a little history of the participation of American dogs in, in that war in particular and in general? Yes, sir. So in World War II, they started the Dogs for Defense, which was a nationwide uh, military program where people could, at that point, you have to understand, like, it was an all-hands-on-deck to support the war effort. Um, so they, it was an opportunity, if you had a dog that you felt would meet the needs to uh, serve in the military, and they had it narrowed down to some breeds, they accepted dozens of breeds of dogs. Uh-huh. Um, you, could donate, you could donate your dog, and they would go through and see if they could make their rigorous training uh, to go over and help support the war effort and save lives. And what, what you have to understand, too, is like at the, uh, so in, in World War II, they had a lot of sentry uh, uh, dogs, which basically helped guard uh, structure, infrastructure. They're going to protect the perimeter. They're going to protect, they're there to walk, the, walk, you know, walk your post from plank to plank and just make sure that uh, there's no one able to breach the, the perimeter. Sure. Then you have sentry dogs. They go out on patrol, so they're able to go out and, uh, 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 detect enemy ambushes and booby traps. Those are the ones who are leading patrols. And in fact, if you fast forward a little bit in uh, the Korean War, they had the 26 scout dog platoon, and it got to the point where they didn't want to go outside on a patrol unless they had one of those dogs with them because they were so successful mm. at alerting on enemy ambushes. And so every time you have a war, a conflict, and uh, if you have an, uh, American troops on the ground, American boots on the ground, right. A, a, a dog has a has a role. They're going to be there, capabilities to meet the threats that you're facing. And at the end of the day, it's about saving lives. So that might look at that capability might look a little bit different based off what climate and what uh, threat you're facing. But at the end of the day, it's the job the dog of the job uh, job of the dog is to save lives, and they've been incredibly successful at that. Um, and you fast forward up to Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had 4,000 dogs served in Vietnam, about 10,000 handlers, um, and they, uh, the, they had sentry dogs, they had scout dogs. Ron Aiello, who was the, one of the founders of the U.S. War Dog Association, uh, he's the president that I took over for, he was one of the first Marine scout dog handlers to serve in Vietnam with his dog Stormy, and they would go out on mm. patrols, and he would, lead the, uh, he would lead the way, and uh, his dog had several successful uh, alerts, uh, which is just critical information and intelligence for the, for the patrol, and you know, it just helps prevent uh, loss of life. Oh, I'm sure. And, I just can't imagine. You were about to say something. No, I was going to say, and then you, you kind of fast forward up into my generation. Like I said, the number one threat we faced uh, was not necessarily ambushes, but it was the improvised explosive right. device. It was IEDs, and that was... That was the number one threat to coalition forces. That's what caused the most uh, the most deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we developed a lot of our capabilities around finding explosive devices, and we got really good at it. Like and it's it's uh, it's important to understand the dogs are just part of a later layered security. It's a uh, it's you know an incredibly important uh, resource, and they become a fully mission capable asset that can really be employed in any measures that that. Uh, the Marines or soldiers or airmen or sailors being deployed in, um, and you just kind of tailor that, that capability of whatever your threat's going to be facing, and it's absolutely incredible what they bring to the battlefield. Like, 
Luca is the only reason I made it home to my family. Like, uh, 100%. Like, that. Wow. She saved my life multiple times, but she also, the people behind me, the guys behind me on patrol, like, she was responsible for people coming home to their families because of her detection capabilities. I just think that's absolutely incredible what they what they do for us. And I, I, I can only guess how they detect the uh, improvised explosive devices. It must be smell. I mean, I can't. Sometimes when I, when I see my dog out there, I'm thinking, what is it like to have all these incredible, you know, smells? Like they're 50 times more capable than we are. How do they detect the ex- improvised explosive devices without blowing up themselves? Yes, sir. So it, it, it is through smell, and it's... Uh it's, it's basically just through a, a best way I can put it is through just positive association. So if you have, if I take four boxes that are one foot by one foot by one foot, and there's a hole in the top of them, all four look the exact same. And then in the one box, I'm going to put whatever target order you want to trade them. It could be, I'm just, just for security reasons, just, just use drugs, for example. Just say, well, I'm training a drug dog. So I'm going to put, uh, marijuana inside of a box. And when the dog walks up and sniffs that box, I'm just going to toss his uh, ball or Kong, his, his reward. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll bounce it off the top of the box. And if you do that 20 to 40 times, you're going to start to develop a positive correlation between that smell equals my reward. That smell uh-huh. equals... Now, these dogs have already been tested and selected, so we know they have the drives and traits to be a working dog. So now I'm just tapping into that and then they start to, and then it starts to bridge it. Like this smell equals my toy, and that what's that's what makes them work for it. It's just a, a positive uh, association drill. And you start to dance it from there. Uh, that's that's great. For those who may have just tuned in, we're talking about working war dogs on this uh, Veterans Day. Our guest today is the uh, president of the U.S. War Dogs Association, Chris Willingham, and. There's no pres- conscription for dogs. There's no. They don't get their draft notices. H- how do they enter the service? So it's uh, uh, there's two different ways. So they've uh, when I was at Lackland Air Force Base, uh, I had the opportunity to go on selection trips. Where basically we would go to Europe, uh, go to Germany, Czech Republic, Holland, or Hungary, and you would uh, you would look at the. There's large dog vendors over there in Europe. It's a uh, it's a way of life for a lot of people. So they've, they've got large dog vendors. We can go in and, and uh, evaluate dogs based off whatever your needs are. So they have the right drives. They have the right characteristics and traits. And I'm just there to test all the dogs, and I'm going to see which ones meet, uh, meet the standard for what I'm looking for for a military working dog. And to give you an example, like I would go over there for 30 days at a time, the largest one I went on, we looked at 480 dogs, and we selected 180 of them. Wow. So you're talking about, we, we on average, we select about a third of the dogs we look at uh, based off our selection test. And the way I look at it is uh, these dogs are they're all athletes, yeah. and you're trying to decide which one you want to give a scholarship to come to your school. That's the way I look at it. And in World War II, well, I know in World War One. Uh, horses were, you know, people who had horses would would donate them. I'm sure it must have been tough as heck. And in World War II, uh, what, was it the case that, that people would, uh, you know, be patriotic and donate their dogs as well? Yeah, so that was part of Dogs for Defense, where you could, uh, you could donate your dog to help support the war effort. Um, and then those dogs would go on to be 
be trained up for various jobs. They had uh, they had a few different capabilities. So, and and what's happened is they started off with dozens. I mean, it was I think it was over thirty breeds they accepted initially because they just didn't know. Right. And in the test of time, you kind of understand and drill down to which dogs are best suited for military operations. And uh, it's come down to a couple of major breeds, and it's the German Shepherd. Right. Uh, the Belgian Malinois is a really good working dog, and it's kind of like a in the family a cousin to the German Shepherd, uh-huh. uh, a little more athletic, a little more agile. Um, uh, but uh, both of them make great working dogs, and you have some like Dutch Shepherds, but it's all kind of that Shepherd uh, Shepherd family uh, Malinois family. And then we also we used uh, we used Labs, we used Labrador uh-huh. Retrievers for for some of our explosive only dogs and. Um, I mean, they were they were incredible, but yeah, they they've kind of stood the test of time for trainability, uh, be able to change from handler to handler. They're they're certain they're uh, uh, just kind of I guess their overall like you know loyalty and, and having the right traits and drives, and also be able to handle handle the uh, the rigors of combat. So that does take a, a special dog for sure. Uh, I was wondering about Labradors, um, and you know, aside from. You know, finding bombs and and guarding the perimeter. There's a psychological comfort in horrible situations. I you know I I read a lot about the First World War. And I think about the trenches there. Talk ab- about their dogs' uh, role as as being you know giving psychological comfort to these soldiers and how important that is. I I always felt like that was just a very important if unofficial. Uh, mission that we had over there like when we were in between patrols i could take the horse off of luca luca and just let her be a dog and just to bring a piece of home to a bad place and just see it lift the morale of the spirits of the guys we're working with and uh they just loved having the dog around and she could just be, play fetch with a we had a flat uh, uh football that she used to play with a lot but just playing fetch with the guys and just coming up and it's okay now giving her belly rubs and just seeing the smiles on her faces and they start talking about their dogs. And so just, it gets your head out of where you're currently at. Like sometimes you need a middle from, from the fighting and just from, from what you're dealing with over there. And, um, just a quick personal story. I, I, uh, I had, uh, I had a guy, uh, Corey Weens and he had a specialized search dog, a yellow lab named Cooper. And we were on a big, clearing operation uh south of baghdad on one of our missions and about four weeks into this big operation the court and i have been very successful at uh locating ieds and helping find insurgents and clearing house to house and uh got to the point where they just they didn't want to go unless they you know, they always wanted to have one of us on their patrol and we made a great name for canine and uh unfortunately max and Corey were killed uh i'm sorry Corey and cooper were killed um uh, uh on one of the last patrols with us, and it was uh, it was a tough. I mean, that was the that was uh, you know it's a tough to kind of go go through that, and it's just me and him with the only two dog counter supporting this unit. So uh, I had to uh, we had we stayed in the tent by ourselves because we had the dogs with us, and I had to go back to that tent uh, later on, and it was just Corey and Cooper's gear still in there, and uh, it was just me and Luca. Um, and that's when it finally, you know, everything slowed down and it had a chance to process and it, mm. it crushed me. And I, I, you know, finally broke down and oh, I was sitting on the ground, leaning up against my cot and I started, uh, started crying and it just, it was, 
it all started coming out and Luca was laying across the room and uh just chilling out just and she got up and came over there and laid down and put her head in my lap. Uh, just knowing that I needed some comfort in that tough moment. It's not something you can train into them. That's just mm. that unconditional love and loyalty. And that she saved my life in more than one way. I mean, that dog was, they're, they're special. I mean, they really do tap into your emotions and what you need. And uh, they say a lot of times when you're training dogs, like it runs down leash, like, so you got to, you know, be consistent with the dog, but also that dog reads all your behaviors. Like they know, like she knew that I was going through a tough time and could use some comfort. And she came over and just hung out with me. And that meant the world to me. Like, Oh, I I can imagine. And, you know, I, I, sometimes I think dogs think, why are you talking? I I don't need to talk. I can read your mind. (laughs) Yeah, really. They, I I do think, I do think they can. What about dogs? I mean, human veterans, uh, get injured you know they get disabled what about dogs being provided to help take care of disabled human veterans uh for for dogs taking care of the like a wounded veteran yeah yeah oh yes yeah that's a that's i mean there's it's a lot more than just having a dog that provides a service for you just that comfort level is just it's very therapeutic i mean they got therapy dogs for a reason and Mm. having a dog uh, specifically assigned to a veteran it's I mean, you're not going to get much better therapy than that. Like, yeah. those dogs really do, like, they, they, they get in sync with you. They get in tune with what you're going through. And uh, the absolute psychological benefits of, of having a, a dog working with a, a wounded veteran are undeniable. Like, it's it's absolutely incredible. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it for myself. I, having Luke in retirement, I think that's another thing that people don't think about is, like I said, you get to adopt your retired military dog. Uh, when they're done with their service, which is a huge win, and it's really just we've come so far in how we take care of our dogs. But that that veteran, that that like for me, when I got to adopt Luke out, I didn't realize like the positive impact it would have on my life of just having her around me. Mm. Uh, as I start getting away from combat operations, and you have you start going through some of your own mental things, and I've but I've got my dog there to serve with me. Uh, that I mean. It, that alone is just absolutely just an incredible benefit of being able to retire your military working dog. Yeah, and I've heard it said that, uh, geez, I wish I could be the person my dog thinks I am, you know. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 2021 has been a big transition year, apparently, for the U.S. Working Dogs Association. Tell us about that, please. Yes, sir. So, we, uh, like I said, just based off my Marine Corps career, I was a canine for majority of it. So I was on the receiving end of support from uh, Ron Aiello and the U.S. War Dogs Association. From care packages were deployed, specialized gear requests. Like they, like some of our, big, our biggest uh, supporters were Vietnam veterans and Vietnam dog handlers. Well, as I started coming up, uh, getting co- I was getting close to retirement. And Ron was looking to, uh, they were looking to, to retire. They're looking to, hey, we need to transition the organization to the next generation. And I was up at his house and he uh, brought me in and they said, hey, I want you to join the board um, with the intent of taking over in a couple of years. And we took our time with the transition and because uh, he's, he's just a, he's a wealth of just institutional knowledge about how the organization runs and all the history and all the you got, I just want to get it right. So we took our time with the transition and uh, January 1st, I was just very honored and humbled to take over as the president of the U S war dogs. And 
uh, I started building my own team. Ron's, uh, he's still my mentor and still involved um, as we're kind of finalizing everything, but Ron will be involved as long as he wants to. He's, he's, he's that special to me. Um, but he's, he's really helped mentor me through this process and give me some advice from li- uh, life lessons that he learned running it. And so I've taken that and I've built a very strong team. I've taken my time and made sure I did my due diligence. And so it's just been a great year of let's get some key infrastructure in place. Uh-huh. Uh, let's set some short, mid, and long-term goals with this team, and let's go out there and crush them. And that's exactly what we're doing. Like yeah. we're, I'm very proud of what, what 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 some of the work we're doing with these guys. Well, we got a lot more to talk about. I'm going to t- t- talk with uh, sculptor Susan Bahari uh, on the next part of the show, who's who's got a new sculpture. But before we let you go, uh, Chris Willingham, I'm guessing there's a website people can look at and possibly uh, help out and be supportive. What might yes, that sir. be? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There is. It's uh, www.uswardogs.org. Uh, check us out on the website. We got it from there. It links to our social media. You can see some original uh, content. We post uh, up-to-date information about some of the dogs we're supporting. And uh, you can sign up for our free newsletter just to get some more insight on kind uh-huh. of the things we're doing with our organization. And uh, absolutely appreciate. I really appreciate the time today and, and the love and support. Oh, I'll bet. Well, well, we appreciate it. And uh, this is a nation of dog lovers. And we, you know... We think about veterans on Veterans Day, and let's think about and uh, feel with our hearts the dogs as well, uswardogs.org. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Chris Willingham, and uh, we owe dogs, that's for sure. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Canine leads the way. (laughs) All right. I hope you'll stick with us, dear listener. And uh, before we go to our next guest, we're going to hear a little bit of uh, Dolly Parton's tribute to her dog. Slept in the mayor's yard, a camp by the river banks. We fed ourselves from the fruit of the land and quenched our thirst with the rain. We never did allow no roots to grow beneath our feet. Cause life was free and simple for Gypsy Joe and me. All we had was each other and the rags upon our closest thing to a home we knew was some abandoned shack oh but we had all we wanted and the rest we didn't need life just had no pattern for gypsy joe and me now gypsy was my little dog i'd found by the road in a ditch so i'd named him gypsy that name just seemed to fit always seem to know while standing by the highway a thumbing for a ride the speeding wheels of a passing car took gypsy's life oh i lost him where i found him and his loss was misery now there's no more gypsy it's just joe and me snow did fly and the night was cold and still and the rags we wore were not enough and joe he caught the chills and oh he told me that he loved me and in my arms he went to sleep 
gypsy and no more Joe, it's just me. While standing here on the edge of this bridge, looking down I see the face of Joe and Gypsy looking up at me. I can hear them calling me Tonight we'll be together again Gypsy Joe and me On November 11th this year, 2021 Veterans Day, the U.S. Navy Memorial will unveil a new sculpture honoring not only all the men and women of the sea services, past, present, and future, but also all military working dog teams. It's also the first monument honoring working military dogs in the nation's capital. As a nation of dog lovers, in addition to the humans, Americans this year are honoring the canines who gave so much, who, out of love, fought and died and served humans of our country this Veterans Day. We're honoring them. Our guest on this part of the show is internationally acclaimed artist Susan Bahari. Thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Susan Bahari has long been known for her inspiring sculptures honoring the bond between animals and humans. Susan's work can be found in national museums, military installations, and public institutions worldwide, including the National Museum of the Marine Corps and the Military Women's Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. Susan Bahari uh, has a new sculpture at the U.S. Navy Memorial in Washington, D.C., which pays tribute to our country's heroes and features John Dongdara and his dog, apparently. Tell us about him and why he's earned this special monument. Well, John Dangdara was um, on a mission with his dog, Bart. He was the lead dog handler to SEAL Team 6 uh, on uh, August 6, 2011, in a Chinook helicopter along with 17 Navy SEALs and 29 military personnel in all, when sadly uh, the Taliban shot down the helicopter, and so they were all lost. Mm. And uh, John was great at what he did. He, uh, he was known as a fantastic person, but he was great as a dog handler. And uh, the U.S. Uh, Navy Memorial did want to honor uh, John and Bart, uh, and as well as, you mentioned, all the members of the Sea Services. And so um, it will reside at the Visitor Center at the United States uh, Navy Memorial in Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania Avenue, where people can see it. And it's been uh, commissioned by the United States War Dogs Association. And they're fantastic. They uh, And they gifted it to them. They have provided for uh, military working dogs uh, in active duty, as well as back home for their veterinary needs and with adoptions when they come home. Yeah, it's a, a great organization, which we talked about in the first half hour. So how did this sculpture come about? I know it's no uh, small feat to get a sculpture commissioned and to get it uh, at a place of honor in Washington, D.C. How did this one come about? Well, thank you. That's true. I'm very honored and humbled by that. 
Um, well, last October, I had done the Pledge Monument, which is a, um, a life-size bronze honoring all the women of the U.S. military. And that's at Arlington National Cemetery at the Military Women's Memorial. And that was seen by the Navy Memorial, and they wanted to have one of my works. And so uh, we went ahead with that, and that's how that came about. And the United States War Dogs Association stepped up again, as they did with, at the Women's Memorial, and uh, commissioned me to do it. And, and so it, what, what does this uh, sculpture look like? Well, uh, John, there was a famous picture of John sitting on a rock in Afghanistan in his combat gear with his rifle in his right hand and having Bart just on the floor, on the ground beside him and um, posing for this photograph. So that was what I used. Um, he's sitting in, you know, as I mentioned, in his gear and the dog is in his vest with his gear as well. And it's as if they're going to get ready soon to go into, into battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his right hand is holding the rifle to his chest, um, which is sort of the, the hand of duty, service to our country. The left hand is, is touching the back of, of Bart and uh, steadying him as he seems appears to see something off in the distance and he's alert. Mm. Mm-hmm. That that alertness can save a lot of lives. Dogs are amazingly alert, more so than we uh, humans. I, I'll tell you, it's amazing to me. Obviously, I am a dog owner. I don't trust anybody yeah. who doesn't like dogs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish dogs could vote. Uh, I'm a, an obsessed <laughs> World War One devotee, and I know that the red poppies were adopted as the symbol by the VFW in 1922 as the symbol to honor those who died in Flanders fields and so many other French battlefields of the Great War. In fact, November 11th was originally Armistice Day, the day the fighting in that Great War stopped. In that recognition, please allow me the indulgence of reminding listeners by reading a a short poem about poppies, Uh, Let me just read the opening lines, and that is, In Flanders' fields the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below, we are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields." That's a really powerful poem, in my opinion. That, so that's the meaning of the red poppies. Tell us, please, about something called the purple poppy movement, what that is, how it got started, your role in it, and what, what is the purple poppy movement all about? Well, I'll tell you, uh, the Australian War Animals Memorial Organization, terrific organization, uh, had um, got the purple poppy movement going in the early 2000s, and it has spread now to many countries, including the UK, um, New Zealand, France, and other countries. And they asked me to be an ambassador for that for them and bring it to the United States, which I've done. And and so the purpose, the meaning behind it, is to honor the service and sacrifice of all the animals that have served through time alongside 
uh, the war animals that have served. And in our case in America, it's all the service animals in the big picture of that, uh-huh. including Yes, and so this will be a wonderful symbol to remind us of this beautiful, innocent sacrifice that our animals do. They do it all for us. They have no choice. So it's to remind us that they serve alongside our soldiers or our handlers of dogs who have service dogs. And so we can wear the red and purple poppies side by side to show that. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing that we're also using to educate the young and old just about, you know, all the things that they have done through history. And that's also the symbol that I have given to the National Service Animals Monument, National Service Animals Monument dot org. If people want to look that up, it's um, where we're. It's a symbol that helps spread this message, and that monument is in honor of all the – it's to the animal-human bond and to mm. the animal service animals that have served alongside their handlers since the founding of our country. And now we're talking about in uh, military, law enforcement, search and rescue, and as, as uh, service animals for assistance animals yes. and guide dogs for civilians – uh, and and veterans, and this is just a very growing arena of how our animals, what they do for us. So the poppy also speaks to what the monument speaks to, this tremendous uh, service that we want to honor uh, those who serve in the past, have served, and continue to serve. And and again, that uh, website for purple poppy. It's a it's a national service animals monument.org ah good to know and again as a uh, world war one fanatic eight hundred thousand horses died in that war and they died sometimes of course like the humans horrible deaths and they you know they didn't volunteer they they didn't choose to be in there so i i wonder if you know we're talking about dogs today mainly but and as it turns out, the horses were sort of superfluous to the First World War. They uh, were, you know, fine. Generals tend to fight the last war, and they were fine for the previous wars, the wars of the 19th century. But I, I wonder if uh, this purple poppy stuff uh, can somehow honor the 800,000 horses that uh, were lost in that war. Yes, it, it honors all of our horses that have served. We've lost millions of horses, mules, donkeys, yes. carrier pigeons, dogs. Oh, yes. we, we use dolphins. We use seals. All these animals and more are service animals. And it's fascinating to hear these stories. Actually, in that monument, we're going to put uh, have a fabulous phone app that goes into the stories. And and I, if you have time I can t- and you like World War One. You could, if you want me to take a couple minutes, I can tell you about Sergeant Stubby of World War One. Uh huh. Yes. Um, uh, I, and the monument in France that I did. Oh, tell me about that actually, because I've seen a picture okay. of Sergeant Stubby. Yes. Yes. Tell you about Stubby. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, well. You know, as your as your listeners might know, um, uh, Sergeant Stubby was like a a Boston Terrier mix that was a stray on Yale campus in, during World War One, when the uh, soldiers were practicing drills before they went on the ship to France. And he befriended one of the soldiers, Robert Conroy, who was a private at the time. 
and uh, they became very close and bonded, as these dogs always are uh, with their humans. And so he taught him many tricks. Um, And uh, then when it came time to go to France, they were so inseparable that uh, Conroy had a friend put him under his overcoat and smuggled him inside the ship. Uh (laughs) Well, eventually the commanding officer discovered Stubby and asked what the dog was doing on the ship. (laughs) And at that point, um, the dog was prompted to do a trick he had learned, which was the salute. He got up on his <laughs> haunches, <laughs> went ar- got upright on his haunches and saluted. And that was enough to have, have the commanding officer say, that's okay, he can stay. <laughs> and then he went on to save countless lives mm. in the trenches of World War One by detecting um, the smell of the mustard gas coming, incoming oh mustard gas. And hearing the artillery shells and alerting to that, and then going to wounded soldiers in no man's land, uh, in between the you know the two lines, uh, to sit by them until help came. And when he came home, he was a major hero. So it's a, it's an amazing story. Um, do you want to hear about the one in France? You yeah, yeah, the, the, the monument. Well, when sure. you mentioned when you mentioned the red poppy, um, I I have to tell you, um, 2018, I was commissioned by the Australian War Animals Memorial Organization to do um, two sculptures in the fields of uh, Posier, France, where um, sadly uh, they had lost more Australians than any other battle. Uh, and mm. um, the you know how it is. Yeah, there's just fields of farmland, but yes. still there's the remnants of, the, of those that are still left behind in, in the ground. And, and the animals. And uh, so in the ceremony, which was so poignant and touching, and I, would, I, I could see some little red poppies coming up through the crevices here and there. And just, I mean, just going to all the cemeteries and just seeing the cost of freedom and what our, what our, you know, what our soldiers had done and how much people suffered. It was just very intense. But being in that monument unveiling in Posier, France, was very, very touching because nine million animals lost their lives in World War I on the Western Front. And uh, that's on my website. If people want to see Bahari Studios, B-A-H-A-R-Y Studios.com, they can see, I have a lot of these in more detail. They can study it. But um, there's, I did a rising horse uh, for representing Australian animals that served. And, um, And I did a dog head that represents all the others on all sides. And it says our spirits live on on the dog tag. So it was a very, very touching moment. They let the pigeons, the carrier pigeons fly. There were donkeys and horses and, you know, and actors and poetry. It was really such a stunning moment because it was for the 100th anniversary of, of you know, of World War One. And so, yeah. Wow, that must have been very moving. So we can we can see that uh, on on your website and uh, yes, you can see photos. And, yeah. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking about animals. Not you know this Veterans Day twenty twenty one. A lot of animals saved a lot of human lives, and it's it's something that we really. I personally think we should remember and, and should honor and, of course, appreciate. And, you know, war dogs, one of the things they do is 
attack. And they can be scary. They can do real damage to the enemy. And and the enemy knows it for sure. And, you know, in, in uh, mm -hmm. domestic life as well, they can, uh, you know, when they're doing law enforcement, they can, they can do a lot of damage. But in reading now about recently about the German soldiers in the First World War, and people have this image of, you know, ruthless, bloodthirsty people. The surprising truth is they were motivated not by hate, but by love. Love of their homes, love of their communities. Anybody, you know, when they go into a war, they're, they're motivated by the love of that. And the dogs are too. Anybody who knows dogs knows they are all about love. How does this play into their roles as working military dogs that, that love? Well, you know, when you go, when, when the soldiers and Marines go into battle uh, or sailors, um, they, they can bring a piece of home back, you know, bring home to their, to where they are in the battlefield. Um, uh, because when they're not working, they are, uh, they've got a dog there and we all know what that means. There's it's love, it's connection and their lives depend upon each other. Mm -hmm. there, there are not many bonds that are stronger than that. Their lives, they're with each other all the time. Um, it's life-saving, the work that they do, and they, and, and they protect each other. So when these dogs go out, uh, these war dogs, they go out ahead. They lead the way to prevent injury from those behind and they can detect the danger sure. much more safely. So they prevent um, a lot of lo loss of life. Um, and and yeah. I imagine when they, when they, you know, attack the bad guys, they're doing it out of love, love for their handlers, for their people. That's what they do. That's, you know, it's, it's protecting yeah. them. Well, that, I mean, that's true. And, and they also, you know, they're also trained that, that, you know, they get a reward, you know, they are dogs. And they are, I mean, they understand when they're trained, you know, they understand that there's a certain way in which they're trained, but for, for, for sure, you know, ultimately they, they're dogs and they don't know what it all means the way we do. Right, right. But, 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 you know, they have incredible senses and often have attacked when, when soldiers have been um, going to be killed from behind, they've, They've saved their lives, and there's so many stories that I know about about this, um, you know. And and also when they come home now, things are different. Uh, there are programs, and the United States War Dogs Association gets involved in that as well. That they they try to when the dogs' services over, they try to partner them, bring them back, and, and get them adopted by their original handlers. Yeah. And they and one of them is uh, the president of U.S. War Dogs, Chris Willingham. Mm -hmm. His dog Luca. Uh, won the Dickin Medal, the greatest medal you can get in the world at the moment uh, for a dog. And because she went on hundreds of missions and no one ever was injured or, you know, killed uh, while she was uh, leading the way. Uh, and they're a force multiplier, which means they they really um, are effective, more effective than uh, soldiers without dogs, you know, by numbers. So they're able to um, really help I think everybody wants to have a war dog if they can when they're in, on the battle. 
Oh, that's for sure. And it's interesting. I was just speaking with uh, with Mr. Willingham, and he didn't mention that wonderful thing that uh, that his dog Luca did. Too to, uh, humble, I guess. <laughs> so, oh, oh! It, she lost her leg. She she lost her leg in her final, you know, oh, on active duty. But they saved her. She came home, and she lived with Chris. And uh, I actually met her. She's she mm. was a wonderful dog, oh, and uh, he and his family loved her. So she really had a beautiful retirement with the family, his family. So, you know, people, you know, they do Veterans Day. It's an important thing to do. Why? There's all kinds of monuments to to soldiers, uh, you know, and, and military people. Why do working military working dogs and animals? deserve a monument? What, what should people think about with regard to that? Well, you know, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi said that, you know, an, a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way it treats its animals. Yes. And I think that that is, um, that's something we say on the National Service Animals Monument Wall as well, because it, it's, it's so true. It shows a high level of respect for life for animals that are so loyal to us, they will do everything for us tirelessly and ask for very little in return and to save lives. And so they deserve to be recognized and they are considered military personnel, just like military. Yeah. So my favorite people have four legs, I must say. (laughs) And occasionally you may hear a little chomp chomp in the background here. That is my dog chewing on a bone. (laughs) He happens to choose. I, I did hear that. <laughs> I, you know, people that don't like dogs, I don't know. There's, There was a certain president in recent times who didn't like dogs. I won't mention any names. I can be political. You probably choose to be. But uh, many of us will attend local Veterans Day ceremonies, and they're very inspiring. But not that many people will travel to the unveiling of the memorial, which includes and recognizes our heroic dogs that we're talking about. This show is heard in communities across the country. What can we all do to help honor these specifically canine heroes? Well, I think we should always support both those in the military and in law enforcement in um, you know, helping them, give, give them whatever they need, uh, funds for their organizations, um, to get vests for protection in the case of police, yes. to, to get more a dogs to protect communities, they save lives in communities. So when you get a dog, you're protecting yourself, your, your own communities. And, uh, and I think, um, yeah, I, I think they can give to great causes. I, uh, and there are many, and I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the big one we're trying to do, the National Service Animals Monument that encompasses all of it. Um, and, uh, you know, continue to create monuments uh, talk to your children about it, what it means. Um, mm. And it, you know what it does? It, it creates a sense of compassion that I think we all need in the world. And I think it's something that today, especially, we can all celebrate and agree upon together that, you know, this is something beautiful. We have a gift of these loyal animals that bring us joy oh, and, yeah. and help and safety and uh, every day. Let's celebrate them. Let's all agree. Politics aside, let's agree that we can be grateful for for that. Yes, we can. And so there is one of the uh, organizations among many is the uh, what U.S. War Dogs Association. Is that it? 
yes, they're a great organization to support. They, um, they, I recommend that um, as the number one uh, place to go. They are, they, tr- they get equipment over to uh, dogs on active duty and handlers uh-huh. when they can't get certain things they need. When they get back home, they have a lot of health issues, so they help with prescription drug programs oh, yeah. and also with adoptions. So um, they've done a, a world of good, uh, for sure. And and I do think you know again World War One seeing these men in these horrible conditions in the trenches, and sometimes they would find a little puppy and. Gosh, that would help them a lot, you know. Just the heart, you know. Aside from uh, uh, the war that they're in, but just just to keep them, keep their spirits alive. And again, That's if people true. want, if people want to see your uh, sculptures, the website again is. It's BahariStudios.com. That's B as in boy. Yep. A A H A R Y Studios dot com. Bahari Studios. Thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, it, it's a good movement to uh, recognize and, and to promote. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. your throat if you move on me I'm sovereign cause I'm the king of the dogs hold out life will pull you pull up answer I don't even own a pair of pants I'm a dancer, baby. Keeping Democracy Alive. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe. Don't miss a single one. On the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.